Hello and welcome to Adjust Your Tracking. I'm Eric McClanahan. I'm Joe Von Oppen. Hey Joe, I think we're uh, we're going to take a hard left turn on this episode, right? It's true. Let's uh, let's try not to flip the vehicle over, but um, yeah, let's 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 take some turns. Let's do it, man. So uh, what's what's on the docket for today? Well, we're going to take a look at two movies that, like, I don't know on paper how much they have to do with each other, but they kind of share a similar kind of lunatic fringe quality to them uh we're gonna take a look at brian taylor of the neville dean and taylor duo his new film mom and dad and uh oscilloscopes road movie an experimental documentary uh assembled from entirely from russian dash cam footage uh (laughs) about all of the vehicular mayhem you can imagine and um so You've you've seen Crank One. This um, is true. Correct. Yes, Crank One, not okay. Crank Two, High Voltage. That one eludes me still. Yeah, I think it. I, I think the surprise hit of Crank One um, was just that. It was a surprise. It was like a sleeper hit in the year two thousand six when it came out, and then by the time they were sort of able to get Crank Two, High Voltage together. Uh, the world had transitioned a little bit and was kind of like less interested in it, despite all of the anti being upped for the sequel. Like the sequel is completely bug eyed and berserk and just like out of its mind. But the original crank, uh, like it, the script itself had been like bouncing around for a while before it actually got made. Um, it was like really popular, I think amongst people who were sort of green lighting movies because of how, how insane the premise was, which was basically um, speed, but with a human body played by Jason Statham, where he has to keep his adrenaline up. So a poison that's been slipped into a system doesn't take hold and kill him. So it's uh, DOA meets speed meets adult swim meets um, PCP. Uh, so <laughs> it's just like, it's all of these things converging at once. And it just had this like, had this what we talk about with like the the tightrope walk of blacklist scripts where like the the concept is so kind of like out there that the almost the challenge of the film is pulling off how potentially stupid the premise is and i think like that wakes people who are used to reading script after script up and they're just like oh jesus this is crazy i can't like how are they going to ever pull this off so i think the script was regarded very like fondly, but they're like, I don't know how this is ever going to get made. So it got passed around a bunch and then they eventually got the funding together. These two guys who admit to be being sort of like drunk and out of their minds at the time. (laughs) And they, they made this movie that I think was able to have an impact because we're at a point where, you know, like you could have a sort of annihilatory energy to something because uh, people were just like throwing shit at the wall to see what sticks. And like adult swim was kind of like Tim and Eric the next year would be coming out. And so there was like this, uh, there was this kind of like, 
uh, I don't know, this kind of antagonistic energy to entertainment where it was just like, let's annihilate everything and just see what settles after, you know, the dust comes down. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, like years later, we're at a point where manic, almost uh, taboo smashing energy almost seems to be the norm with who's kind of running the country at the moment. And, uh, you know, what what used to fly in the face of a, a kind of conservative, uh, like what what used to attempt to be transgressive to what is traditionally known as conservative, and now the conservatives have a kind of like anarchistic energy to them where they're like, yeah, fuck, e- fuck everything you think is sacred. Like you're the ones that can't take a joke. So we're in just in this topsy-turvy, upside-down world where like, who knows like what is truly subversive anymore. Mm -hmm. And so here we are. Um, Brian Taylor is now at the helm of uh, a new movie and um, just by himself. Yeah. Just him. Neville Dean is, is off doing his own thing. Hopefully they'll reunite at some point. (laughs) I know there's no bad blood between them, not personally, but I've just been told that there's anyway, you just, so (laughs) I just have a feeling, a good feeling that they're chumps. So Brian Taylor, it it was always his dream to work with Nicolas Cage. And I think if the Crank movies continued, they wanted to somehow rope Nicolas Cage in. And they worked together on Ghost Rider, at least one of the sequels. Mm-hmm. And then with this film, it's a, it's a movie whose premise is not unlike a sort of Night of the Living Dead premise where all of a sudden something overtakes um, a part of the population who become zombified with their own bloodlust, but it's parents who inexplicably have to murder their children. Pretty simple premise. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's like, to me, it's, it's interesting because it simplifies when we don't know what's taboo anymore. Like what's the ultimate taboo, like yeah. killing your children. Like that crosses all political spectrums. It taps into something very primal, very sort of like to the bone like sensitive. And so you, you don't have to like for, for movies that are not overtly political, they're just sort of gonzo bug eyed out of their minds. Like they still have an intent to uh, cross lines and be transgressive and be in your face. So like it flies in the face of like political correctness and sensitivity. But now that we're in a sort of upside down political correctness, negated universe, like, Brian Taylor seems to have found a premise that, you know, disregards all of those. And it's just like, <laughs> all right, let's, let's, let's focus on the most, you know, human terror, which is like, imagine if your parents were trying to kill you. <laughs> and so we enter the nuclear family led by Nicholas Cage and Selma Blair and their two children who over the course of a day have to fend for themselves against their parents who are frothing at the mouth. Nicholas Cage seems to be frothing at all times. And um, you just need to plug him into the right circumstance for it to like really work. Mm-hmm. And um, seeing him uh, come to life in this is, <laughs> is pretty spectacular. The movie it's, it's weird because like for crank to have worked you know, 11 plus years ago, you know, it seemed to come out of nowhere. It seemed itself to take a hard left turn. 
And now we're in an era of kind of like, you know, after the VOD glut and the, you know, just in an era of overload and already extremity, uh, midnight movies seem to, which this seems to be a midnight movie, you know, it's like packaged and engineered to be. And, um, outside of the festival run, there's really no theatrical place for them. This one will play theaters, but it's mostly going to live on VOD and then streaming eventually. And that's weird. Like, it's weird because it does, you know, for all of its flaws, which we'll get into, like, it does seem to tap these notes that are best experienced in a room of people who are all gasping in unison, all screaming in unison, all laughing in unison. Like, there's nothing like that. And as much as it was fun to watch it at home on a relatively big screen. Like it is missing that sort of like punch, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, but, uh, let's, let's, uh, let's unpack. What's your experience with the, the, the Taylor, the Mr. Brian Taylor? Well, I, I'm pretty, uh, limited. I've seen the first crank. First movie. crank movie. Mm-hmm. I need to, I need see, to see the sequel, the sequel still. still. I still feel like I, still I should. Feel like, I should. like, do you yeah, recommend? I think yeah, you do. Okay. okay. Um, cause, didn't hate the first crank movie. I guess in a way it was built up for me at the time by someone who really enjoyed it before I was ready mm-hmm. to sort of, I think it was just before I had wrapped my brain around what exploitation cinema actually is, you know, and I'm even right. the origins of exploitation cinema. I think now I'm much more experienced and I actually kind of like a lot of those movies now. So crank in my memory was more fun than actually when I watched it at the time. I think otherwise in terms of Neville Dean and Taylor, I've basically not consciously, I guess like I haven't avoided them. I just haven't seen anything else. I did hear that that ghost rider sequel was like awful, like really, Mm -hmm. really bad. But of course they got to work with Nick cage and maybe that was the, maybe that was their getting the foot in the door with him where then Brian Taylor was able to do this project with him because, and I guess to me, that's, that's kind of awesome because Mom and Dad is, I'm not going to go to bat for it as a great movie, like broad sense, great movie, but it's a good exploitation movie. It's a, because, right, let's just start with the premise that you brought up. Yeah. That's yeah. hilarious. Good exploitation cinema simplifies something, distills down a sort of nation or um, just human wide sort of fear or um, anxieties, you know, all the things you laid out that this movie is about. It, it does. That's what good exploitation cinema does. It, it has, it has to have a, almost a winking sense of ridiculousness. It doesn't need to bother explaining too much, which this movie thankfully uh, avoids for the most part. It gives you enough to be like, something's going down, but it it's more of one of those, like um, you're in the perspective of the character so much that you just can't know the global reaches of what the fuck is going down in this movie. But yeah, that's what works for it. So small scale, large scale, you know, um, a sort of mix in that way and just really coming up with almost the stupidest, but funniest way to just have insanity go on in your movie. And, um, mm-hmm. I, I guess, uh, uh, to, to hand it back off to you, I really, um, I think this movie is deeply inspired by a seventies movie that you and I have talked about before. I don't know if on the podcast it's possible, but do you know the, do you remember the movie who can kill a child? Of course, yeah. This this movie reminds me of that film in a lot of ways. Now, I think Who Can Kill a Child actually comes up with a quite artful way into its exploitative elements. 
But at heart, both yeah. movies are about the ultimate cinematic taboo. I, I think it still is the ultimate cinematic taboo. And it takes a lot to shock me or to like get my attention sometimes in this these kind of movies. But if you kill kids in movies, it does feel like all bets are off. And um, both movies do that. I recommend people catch up with Who Can Kill a Child if you can find it. But um, yeah, Mom and Dad is like, it's a bit of fun. You know, I, I would love to have gotten to see it in a cinema. And actually, I... I don't even know. Is it going to get much of a theatrical lease? Like, like I'm sure in LA it's going to play in some theaters, but um, yeah, it, yeah. Does, it feels like a VOD movie. It's getting its kind of like requisite uh, run at the, there's a chain of art theaters around here called Lemley. And it's, so it's playing it. And I think uh, one of their locations and it'll probably hand off to like the next one. And so it'll play for like a, you know, a few weeks here, but it's, mm-hmm. it's, I think it's mostly to, you know, basically have its life on VOD and uh, which, you know, like it, it is like, you know, it is fun watching Nicolas Cage play to the back of the house, you know, <laughs> and so to see it, you know, in a, in a room full of people, which like, even it, if, and when it does play in theaters, you're most likely not going to see it in a room crowded with people unless they're doing like a special kind of, you know, Q and a session. Yeah. Um, yeah. so it, I don't know. It's, it's, it's interesting because like there's an intimacy to the movie where it's like, you know, it has the, this like pandemic going on where it's like parents killing kids, which is dopey, but also kind of like, you know, immediately kind of propulsive and compelling. And then it, it scales it down to, you know, mostly taking place, over like the second half of the movie in one household that's like quickly becoming unraveled. And like, there's, there's something in all of their work thus far that I've seen, especially in the crank movies that they, they know how, even as it's coming unhinged to direct action in a way that's Mm -hmm. like, that has a, a really feral visceral quality you know, there's like a scene where uh, Nicolas Cage stumbles on a toy truck yes. when he's sort of losing his mind and the camera kind of takes off with him. And there's like there's a real propulsive quality to it that like they manage even in their more scaled down intimate set pieces to like have this kind of frenzy to them. And I think that like, you know, like the crank movies are just all frenzy. Mm -hmm. Like that's all they are. Um, This is like a little dialed back, even as the premise gets more and more berserk, but there's like, there's something in the frenzy of the action set pieces. That's really satisfying that Mm -hmm. like takes the limitations of what's most likely like a pretty cheap movie and like really kind of makes them sing in a time where like, I don't know, like it just doesn't seem like the more CGI, like, centric uh these exploitation movies are getting the kind of like less of an impact they're having (coughs) and i think brian taylor finds a way to like fuse what has to be you know a lot enough cgi with practical stunt work Mm -hmm. that really sort of like makes moments pop in this like energetic way I think that's what audiences, you know, the ones that like those crank movies and have kind of followed these, this director duo or or just Brian Taylor in this instance, like that's what they love about them. Right. Is I think there's real scrappy ingenuity in these movies, the camera work, like because they've benefited from coming of age as filmmakers where technology is getting so small, the cameras get so small that they, they're like the GoPro action filmmakers. Like, I don't know if they literally use GoPros, but I bet they have them on 
set all the time, you know, ready to use. And um, that the sequence with Nick Cage, you explain, it's like a five second thing, but I thought of the exact same moment or I really liked that moment too, because the camera does something I don't think I've ever seen it do in something so simple. Like it lurches forward with him as he steps on like a yeah. toy truck and like moves. Forward. It's, it's exciting. And it's, uh, it's cool because it is such a basic, you know, a stunt person, a couple edits and the camera, you know, it's, it's simple. And, um, that's, I guess what's, what's exciting to me about something like mom and dad is, and why I think it's like true exploitation cinema versus say, um, let's use like grindhouse the, or even just death proof as an example, the Quentin Tarantino, like reviving of old exploitation, like that movie is a lot of fun and I love it, but I think Grindhouse, that experiment would have worked better if they actually did something more along the lines of mom and dad, like actually had a low budget and didn't get to just like build it, build it up so much that it was like so big. I mean, I don't know. Those movies are fun, both Death Proof and Planet Terror. But I guess the ultimate point I'm making is mom and dad is a more true example of what like modern exploitation cinema is. Um, and, and that's cool. I'm like, just glad that it exists for, for fuck's sake. I mean, like, and, and that it isn't just God awful, like too bad that mom and dad's gonna exist on mom and, uh, on VOD, but for the most part, but, um, it's not terrible, you know, like, and I don't even mean to damn it with faint praise. It's like, I had fun with this movie. Uh, and a lot of that comes from, um, oh, another thing I thought of is, okay, so if the crank movies are like on PCP, mom and dad is maybe more like Red Bull. Like it's not quite as bad shit, but it's, it's like, you know, it's, it's the Red Bull vibe as opposed to the PCP. Um, it's definitely got enough crazy in it. It's got that energy, but it is a little bit more like honed in or, or reined in, I guess. And there is a pretty good buildup to this movie. Um, I don't know what you thought about that, but I, I kind of liked the buildup of the film and it, and it, and it, uh, it kind of goes to a lot of places. Um, not that I wouldn't have expected, but it surprised me as it took like jagged hard turns throughout the story. Yeah. I think that like the fact that it actually takes us time to build someone, even at like a sort of lean 80 minute running time takes time to establish you know, the, the world before it goes berserk, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think as, um, like, as he's most likely maturing as a filmmaker, like, you know, with the, the crank movies and gamer, you know, they're, they're sort of like their follow up to the crank movies. Um, there was, there was such a, a sort of, <laughs> um, bug eyed intensity to them and such a, an, an, an annihil- a sense of annihilation to them that it was like, you couldn't tell what anything stood for. Everything was kind of a joke and everything was kind of an opt out. And like, that was, that was fine in the sort of spirit of anarchy that the movie seemed to encapsulate. Hmm. But now it's just like, we're, you know, we're living in an era of like where it's, it's hard to sort of keep the catastrophes straight anymore. <laughs> and it's just like, there is a sense of genuine anarchy going on that like of a, a life speeding up and out of control that like, actually planting your flag and making things matter and having an emotional stake and consequence is a sort of mark of maturity for Mm. like Brian Taylor as a filmmaker, even as he goes kind of like berserk and like traffics and kind of, you know, there's a scene involving a newborn. That's just like, fuck, if this goes the wrong way, um, (laughs) I feel, I feel like this could just, 
completely torpedo all energy the movie has. And like playing with that danger was like, there was a genuine menace to it. And it was just like, Oh, please, please. And like the use of music during the sequence, um, which, you know, we both commented on, like there's, there's a sort of, there is something playful about it, but while a genuine sense of like menace is happening. And so like, I think that like the, that the movie paces itself and slows down and it allows itself to establish even in what feels like a blackly comedic sort of mean joke of a movie. There is a sense of like scale and there is a sense of like things mattering. And I Mm -hmm. think like as, as Brian Taylor matures, you know, like you, you see that work on his, his new sci-fi show happy, which I brought up to you off mic. Yeah. Um, it's like it has the same kind of propulsive manic energy to it, but there is a little more humanistic heart at work. And like over the course of a show that has to pace itself, you, you get to see, so, you know, like that sensibility breathe a little bit. So it's not just like careening towards a cliff the way life and reality itself seems to be right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I uh, never had the plan before we went on mic to, uh, to get into how perhaps this director is maturing, but I think you made a very good, good, you articulated it quite well. I I can't really deny. I mean, there is some sense of maturity going on. And I think, um, I, there, there's an interesting element that, uh, I'm, I guess the ending of this movie, like the actual sort of cut to black to the credits is something I'm still trying to wrap my brain around. And I, I didn't even think that this movie would, give me that level of like thoughtfulness of it. But it, it, it did because I don't know if I think the ending's bad necessarily, but I can't help but think I was, um, I'd be lying if I didn't say I wasn't like a little disappointed by it. And I guess what I mean by that is because the movie is so faithful to what exploitation cinema is in that it actually has a lot of padding in it. Like it's a short movie. It's uh, awesomely like 83 minutes long, but the actual like exciting movie bits, like the exploitation stuff is really maybe like 50 minutes of it. And the slow build is great in the beginning because you don't want to just dive right in. You know, you need a little bit of a buildup for the characters. So think, so there are stakes at play and that's really well done. I have no problem with that. As the shit is hitting the fan in the movie, though, like there is a point where it starts to do these uh, almost fl- uh, not almost there are flashback scenes that pop up. And I yeah. find that I find that interesting because uh, Quentin Tarantino loves to do that. These discursive little like sidetracks to get you like right as the narrative is ramping up. He likes to take you away from it and then bring you back in and give you yeah. new information. I actually think it's pretty well employed in this movie as well. However, um, I couldn't help but thinking with the way the movie ends, it's, uh, I guess I'll say it ends on a, an anticlimax in some ways, um, from my perspective. And I thought, well, if you didn't pad the movie out, you could have actually wrapped up this, this story or actually given me something that might've in the moment felt more satisfying. I can't help. I'm not disappointed by the ending. I just, I, well, no, sorry. I am a little disappointed by the ending, but I, I, I'm not saying I think it's bad. I'm just, I, I guess I wish they could have wrapped it up still a little bit more given everything else that they did that was so interesting leading up to it. Yeah, I think that um, there's there's enough, like because the kind of epidemic is never explained the way it's never explained in Night of the Living Dead, it's right. just sort of like hinted at that like, you know, 
maybe it's Dawn of the Dead where they say there's no more room in hell. Um, yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, <laughs> I think about that a lot. No more room in relevant, hell. a little relevant. Yep. Anyway, um, there's there's just certain things that like it's kind of open ended, and you can imbue like a lot of subtext and meaning to its open endedness. And you know, there's there's like a a scene in a classroom early on during the kind of like uh, quiet build up in. <laughs> When we say quiet buildup, like it's not quiet. No, it's, still, it's still like a propulsive, you know, like pace to the movie. But um, it's Red Bull you know, quiet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a it's the the quiet before the Red Bull gives you wings. Um, <laughs> but uh, in a in a classroom where like the teacher is trying to kind of uh, tell the students what um, planned obsolescence is, and awesome. like so yeah. it's like it's no accident that that is the topic that you know, is sort of introduced, like it could be anything. He could be a math teacher, but it's like planned obsolescence, like the sense of wastefulness and the sense of like capitalism constantly, you know, causing us to like buy more and more, even though there's less and less resources and there's like no room to keep the garbage that's, you know, becoming of our technology. And so it's just like this, as we're lurching towards this like climax as a civilization, like planned obsolescence is like this thing that like, you know, is, is sort of propelling us forward in our, you know, our own humanity is almost planned obsolescence. And so like that subtext is like, to, to me, it's like, there's, there's something interesting that the movie plays with that's open-ended. And I think if it didn't, if it didn't conclude on somewhat of a cliffhanger, um, I don't know that there would, there would be a satisfactory answer you know yeah or, yeah okay and there, there is like there is the peak of the movie in terms of like the kind of surprise that comes with like um it's in the opening credits so I'm not spoiling anything but Lance Henriksen pops up yes. towards the end of the movie <laughs> and like there is there is a a real crescendo to the movie that's like it's its own sense of satisfaction that like even as the movie doesn't really wrap itself up in a tidy way or explain itself there's a genuine kind of thrill to the peak the movie gets to. Yeah, um, yeah. It also makes good use of another pop song from the eighties. Like <laughs> it's just beautifully used. Um, I won't spoil that, but um, <laughs> if you like erasure, you'll love the ending of mom and dad. Aww, it's um, just like rules of attraction, Joe. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, there's just, um, it's interesting to, you know, like be 10 years down the line from, you know, Brian Taylor's debut and like one, like, you know, there being a, and wondering where his place is with his kind of like, you know, anarchistic tendencies. Um, and like this movie, I don't, I don't know if it's going to find much of an audience. There's definitely enough Nicholas Cage fans that are interested in what weird shit he's going to get up to. And, um, Fun fact, he he actually said that this was the most fun he's had on a on a film set in 10 years. Oh, that's um, awesome. He said that in an interview or something? Yeah, it was uh, Courtney looked up the sort of fun trivia about the movie and apparently he went on record to say that. So See, that that shows because I I think we both are saying this. Nick Cage still has the ability to fucking deliver as a movie star and he what he does even though it's become it's sort of devolved into this bizarre, like he just takes any project he can. I think he's just, dude's just just trying to pay the bills. So he and like Bruce Willis are in so many movies that even you and I have no idea exist right now. (laughs) 
<laughs> and uh, so that's kind of strange. But Nick Cage can still bring it. Unlike, I would say, Bruce Willis. I've kind of given up on Bruce Willis as a modern day actor, but maybe he'll surprise me. But Nick Cage. I think if, if you plug, <clears throat> pardon me. It's okay. If you plug Bruce Willis into the right project, like the way Wes Anderson occasionally does, or I think even like Quentin Tarantino could plug him into something interesting. Good point. Like he'll, he'll come to life, but yeah, he does just seem to have like a, a workhorse quality to him where there's something joyless about his presence. And like, you know, like he was, he came, he became a star because of his charisma. And mm-hmm. it's just like, what, like he's become a cipher almost, you know, of like anti charisma. <laughs> Boredom. He just looks bored all the time. And you can't say that about Nick Cage. Nick Cage is never bored. Even if he was bored making, it sounds like probably been bored making a lot of the crap he's been making. And mom and dad sort of lit a fire in him a little bit, maybe like it comes on, it comes off on the screen. Like you, you get it. And I, I do think that there's a lot of, um, interesting uh, this movie kind of goads the audience a lot into thinking it's going to be really offensive about something but it actually tends to be kind of even-handed and i don't you know i feel like we've probably talked about the movie enough already so it's not like we need to belabor it but like there are racial things going on in this movie that are very overt but they're all these pieces are set up and they often subvert what you, what a very reactionary modern audience might think in that moment. Um, like one brief example is their daughter, Nick Cage and Selma Blair's daughter, uh, who's a teenager is dating a young black man. And you think Nick Cage doesn't like him. And the daughter thinks this too, because he's black, but it's actually, actually much simpler than that. Uh, it's it, it, from what I read, it has nothing to do with race. Uh, maybe it does subconsciously for the Nick Cage character, but um, I guess what I'm saying is this movie is surprisingly more complicated than I thought it would be or more complex, which that's a there's another thing pointing out a certain maturity level in Brian Taylor's filmmaking. Like I was actually genuinely surprised by that, too. Um, and you mix that with a really fun Nick Cage performance, kind of performances by everybody across the board. I think Selma Blair is really good in this movie. I like yeah. For the most part, I like the, the the young actors. I think they they do a good job. Um, yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. There's like, uh, and like you said, man, that Lance Henriksen appearance is just because you know if you're paying attention to the opening credits, you know he's going to pop in at some point. Yeah. The, the fact that he comes so late in the movie, you're like, okay, so this is the climax of the movie. And um, really? yeah, Lance Henriksen and Nick Cage as father and son, fucking genius move. I never would have thought of it, but boy. I was sold on it the second it happened. Yeah, it delivers. Um, it, it does. And uh, I, I think that, like, you know, uh, Nick Nicholas Cage also has, uh, he's got a role in the new Panos Cosmatos movie, the guy who directed Beyond the Black Rainbow. Oh, he's got a new movie, huh? Yeah, he's got a movie. It's premiering at Sundance. Uh, it's called Mandy. And, like, from the stills, it looks, you know, out of its mind in its own way. Dude, so it's just, we need maybe, to do a holdup of beyond the black rainbow. Okay. Um, yeah, maybe we can correlate it with, uh, with Mandy when it comes out, but I think Nicholas cage might have, you know, might have a good year this year. Yeah, dude. Cool. So that movie's called Mandy. I, I haven't, I, at this point, you and I, I think used to pay more attention to what's planned at Sundance, but at this point I'm like, I'll hear about the shit that I want to see. So I'm a little bit, I'm probably just too busy right now. So I hadn't heard that, but that is so exciting, man. Um, well, yeah. I pay attention, so I'll let you know. Good. Someone's got to do the work around here.
so uh, talk about hard left turns. I mean, I guess we're still in the realm of some semblance of exploitation cinema, but I guess this, the 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 pole on the spectrum that we're at right now is much more in the art house realm uh, for, yeah. for for our next movie, the the road movie. Um, so uh, lay it on me, Joe. What what the fuck's going on with this movie? Well, it's 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 a similar kind of like high wire pitch you know when when i tell people about it they're like whoa that sounds crazy which it is you know it's a movie culled together entirely from russian dash cam footage which from what i know when you know one of my friends pointed out like have you heard about like all the crazy shit that's coming out about you know people having dash cams on their cars in in russia which is like i think was a byproduct of a bunch of insurance scams Mm. like people faking accidents and stuff like that so everybody started getting dashboard mounted cameras in their cars and so like having this kind of insane perspective like barreling down the the roads and interstates like and uh you know seeing what you know from the perspective of looking out of your, your windshield, like what is coming at you, you know, the potential, you know, condition from watching like, you know, any number of terrifying viral videos, like you're expecting something bad to happen. And this movie doesn't shy away from that, but it sort of artfully orchestrates all these moments together and they start to speak to each other in this weird way (laughs) and almost kind of like threads this narrative out of nowhere um, but I, I think the the pitch of it being like a movie assembled entirely from dash cam footage is like has that kind of faces of death, which I think is a movie that's kind of cited on the tr- in the trailer as like it's like faces of death. And it's like, OK, I mean, I, I guess I kind of see that. But I also see there's like a, a, an artfulness to it, you know, in the editing, in the sort of like assemblage of like how these moments go together. Definitely. That, that isn't just a sort of like grim, exploitative, rotten.com type experience. <laughs> and uh, was that a deep cut, rotten.com? Very deep cut. Well done. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so, yeah, it's just like I, w- I was actually excited to see this in the theater. Um, did not get a chance to yet uh, just because I wanted to know what it would feel like, but you know, putting headphones on and watching this movie, you know, on a smaller screen didn't, you know, lessen some of the impact of like what becomes an immersive and kind of like occasionally terrifying experience. I agree. Like the, two episodes ago when we talked about the new Don Hertzfeld short, I went on a very, let's admit, kind of hyperbolic thing about uh, how kind of what a glorious age it is right now for entertainment and stuff like that. Yeah. And I would include something like the road movie in, in that conversation, because how does this movie exist at other, any other period of time than right now? And it's so, uh, it's so of the moment. And that's kind of what made it fun to watch on my computer screen with headphones. The, the very same experience you're referring to. Um, the other thing, though, of course, um, I don't think anybody, almost nobody will get to see this in a theater. Um, you know, this is going to be almost straight to VOD, don't you think, for, for Oscilloscope? I actually think that it's, um, I think that it's coming out mostly theatrically. Wow. Uh, and it's not VOD for like a window of time. Wow, so it's, it's playing at the Lemley here in Los Angeles. Um, 
I think it's the Santa Monica theater, the Monica four. And then if you go to oscilloscope, they'll, they show you the rollout of theaters. that's opening. And I don't think it's playing in Portland. I do think it's playing in Seattle. Um, So I think it's like, it's, it's a road show. It's like a kind of <laughs> traveling experience of like it going kind of like state to state. Some okay. of them simultaneously. Um, but yeah, I think the intention is to kind of experience this in the, in the most big way possible before it lives, you know, on home entertainment systems from then on. That's, that's awesome. And I think just, it's worth just taking a moment to say, you know, how much you and I really applaud the folks at Oscilloscope. Like they're one of the really cool distributors yeah. that they have been scrapping along for so long now in a really hard time for indie distributors and they've just stuck it out and they do good work. They really put out awesome films. They put out like Kelly Reichardt's movies, a couple of them. They put out Embrace of the Serpent, my favorite movie from a couple years ago. They're, they're awesome, man. Like, so that's great. And they are fighting for weird oddball things like the road movies, stuff that is like so impossible to get attention and marketing for, you know, that actually can impact a movie's gross. They just go to bat for a movie like this. So, um, hats off to them. Thank you. Oscilloscope. Um, because this movie is artfully done and I guess, if I ever got to see it in a theater, Joe, I imagine a scenario like we've had in the past, you and I, where we go to like a festival screening. Uh, when you were still living in Portland, we would go to the uh, PIF press screenings. This would be one that you and I would just be like, wow. And all the older audience, to, not to disparage yeah. that, but the older audience would walk out or be like, what the fuck was that? But you and I would be jazzed by this thing and be like, and we'd be the lonely young people, I guess, <laughs> in the theater. Yeah. Um and I do, I'm a little bit bummed that I just am almost definitely not going to get that experience, but that's okay because this movie is, is the, I think the, the biggest thing about it is that it's, um, or a few things that I just adore about it is that it's like 65 minutes long. So this movie yeah. knows when to get out, you know? Yeah. Um, but there is a true sort of, there's, a there's like a narrative that does get created or a consi- uh, an evolution from one sequence to the next because it's so skillfully edited. Right. Um, there's an evolution, but also um, there's an inherent tension in watching this perspective on a camera. Right. I think you're, you're barreling forward sometimes so fast that it, even on a computer screen, it's like um, it's as close as I've experienced to like something like virtual reality where I get so into it where I'm like, holy shit. And it, there's a tension and you start to lock up because something bad is always going to happen pretty much at the end yeah. of one of these clips. So the tension just keeps you going and going. And then it's over all of a sudden. And something that might have seemed like an endurance test to watch an hour long assemblage of dash cam footage is sort of like hallucinatory and abstracted and like bizarrely compelling. So um, it's a fascinating movie and I'm, I'm, I'm very glad it's out there for sure. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. Cause like when we were talking about this episode, we we're talking about, you know, ex- extremity and overload in an era of extremity and overload. So it's just like, how do you craft something that's um, that, you know, kind of elicits an overwhelmed reaction to people who are already overwhelmed, you know, just in their mm-hmm. lives, like paying attention to the world around them. And I think that numbness is a potentiality that like just out of self-defense, people are just going to start to not know how to 
<clears throat> react appropriately to, you know, a, a such a rapid succession of like catastrophes, you know, right. the world, the world's entirely on fire or it's flooding or, or there's scandals and everyone's a scumbag. And it's just like every, everything's corrupt and awful. And so to <laughs> the prospect of watching potential catastrophe after catastrophe is just like, how do you like, how do you even like, you know, co-sign, you know, that experience? Like how do you recommend people put themselves through the trauma of that? But I think that there, there is an artfulness and a meditative quality to the movie where like, instead of getting numb, you start listening to the voices in the movie because there's like the drivers and the passengers and you start to like, latch on to their humanity in, in this kind of like ab abstract collage of a movie, you know, and like there is a kind of tone poem quality to it. Like I, you know, the, 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 the critic pull quotes from the trailer say jackass meets faces of death. I think it's more like Koyana Scotsy meets world star hip hop where it's like yeah. this, you know, <laughs> these like weird kind of caught candidly moments that thread together in this kind of like hallucinatory hypnotic quality. And, um, and so like you, you almost, you do start to read stories onto these moments of devastation and you do start to like cling to the, the present humanity that's there in the voices or the people that you see in front of you. And so there is like a weird humanistic quality, you know, that like, that does arise out of this experience. I was going to bring up, there was, um, there's this experimental film I went to go see in uh, October at um, uh, a museum show at the Hammer Museum here in Los Angeles. There's a group called Superflex that make these weird concept um, uh, like short films where one of them, they set a Mercedes Benz on fire and just for nine minutes you're watching it burn, which is um, weirdly, uh, I think, hypnotic and calming to my cat who watched it with me. Huh. But <laughs> that was not at the museum, though. I did not take that <laughs> to the museum. Good. But there was a there's a, sh- a film called Flooded McDonald's. Whoa, okay. Where it's like they recreated this mock-up McDonald's that's fully functional, and then they flood it for 20 minutes. So you're watching this like restaurant, overlit, empty, no one's in it, slowly fill with water, and there was something weird, like just weirdly like hypnotic and sad about it watching the, all these like little artifacts that we have around all the time cups mm-hmm. and like coffee pots all become dislodged as water fills up and so this abstract kind of thing become takes on this meditative quality and this weird kind of like heartache in its abstraction and mm-hmm. i think like road movie almost does the same thing where it's like because it has no narrative that's assigned to characters because it's a documentary that seems to exist in fits and fragments. Mm. Like you, you as a viewer start to imbue your own humanity on it. Yes. And like, that's, that's what I got out of flooded McDonald's as well. I walked out feeling kind of like sad and overwhelmed, but it was so great, you know? And, uh, I, I got to see that in a dark room. So hopefully I'll get to do that with road movie at some point. That's very cool. So the ending of flooded McDonald's, I'm sure like Sally Hawkins swims out and has sex with like a, an amphibious creature, right? Is that, is that what happens in that? In my memory, I do fuse the two together. So yeah. <laughs> it should have taken place at a fucking McDonald's in shape of water. Mm-hmm. Um, and Jennifer Lawrence is crying somewhere in the background and screaming. <laughs> it, it all kind of fused together. Get out of my McDonald's. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, 
I love that um, you said the word humanity. The Road movie is filled with moments of just just empathy and humanity where I find this movie kind of bizarrely funny at times, just on a like visceral level. You're like, whoa, that truck just tipped over, taking a left turn and a woman was five feet away and barely registered. That's kind of funny. And then you'll get the, you'll get the subtitle comment of the driver in the dash cam perspective. That's like, you fucking idiot. Like, it's just funny, you know? And then there's this, these oddball timing moments where, People are talking about how dash cams are changing Russian society for the worse, or like they make people get into fights or something. As mm-hmm. you're watching two people park to the side of the road and get into a fight, like it's like they must have, uh, you and I have talked about that idea of a documentarian just. In this case, it's different, but like shooting footage or finding footage and suddenly being like, yes, like how could you have ever, you couldn't have planned that yeah. moment. Yeah, and yeah. The road movie is full of little sequences like that where it's like, you just couldn't have planned it better. It's only in the magic of just coincidence in real life could something like that happen at the same time. So there's lots of good yeah. moments like that. But the humanity, man, there there are several brutal car crashes in this movie where almost definitely some people die. I I think it's even commented on, but you know what I remember though, from those moments, uh, a week on from seeing the movie, I, I, I remember the brutality and the scariness of it. And then the anger I felt at like someone doing something stupid with a car that caused an accident. But mostly I remember a lot of people pausing whatever they had going on in their day just trying to help. Now, sure, they do that thing where people start to hover around an accident and maybe it gets too busy and too overwhelming. But to me, that's talking, that's just showing that there's a lot of good people in the world that mostly, most of them just want to help people if they have an opportunity. And um, potentially maybe I'm reading a real optimistic viewpoint from that, but I, I, that's what I took from it. I was like, look at all these people that just want to help in this situation after this brutal crash, you know, and, and you get all the messiness wrapped in there, the, the real life messiness, but also it's like, man, like people are trying, you know, people are trying to, to help. And uh, I, I kind of found that oddly touching in this movie when I wasn't yeah. laughing or cringing, I guess. Yeah. And so like the, the, the potential mean spirited, mean spiritedness of both films we talked about, like had a surprising amount of heart and humanity to them. I never would have guessed that. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's the truly thrilling part of both of this oddball double feature. It is. It is. Well, uh, it seems as good a point as any to wrap it up. What do you think, man? Yeah. Sounds good. So just chill to the next episode. Cool. Well, yeah, look for both these movies. You know, uh, this is a time of year. We're in 2018 now. I think if you follow this show, Joe and I are really going to be talking about a lot more off the beaten path stuff. This is sort of um, me and Joe talk about. It's like our time. We we love, sure, 2017 has yielded a lot of great big movies that a lot of people are seeing and, and are talking about. But we call this show Adjust Your Tracking for many reasons. But one of the reasons is... We want to clue you into some oddball shit that's worth examining and looking up and finding. So, um, yeah, I think there'll be more oddball stuff coming in the next probably even four or five months, I'd say. So um, hopefully you like that. But let us know what you think uh, about uh, about our oddball choices. You can you can email us at adjustyourtracking at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter, Eric underscore AYT, or I guess at Adjust Your Track. You'll find all our AYT news there and some of my opinions and ramblings if you want to hear that. Um, what about Facebook, Joe? People can find us there. 
yeah, just look up at gesture tracking. We're the podcast. You can follow us, like us. Um, we'll let you know when episodes are coming out. True. It's very um, true. Did you talk about iTunes? Did you mention iTunes? I did not. Thank you. Yeah. Find us there. Rate, review, subscribe. Same with Stitcher, if that's your jam or SoundCloud, you can follow us there and, and just get episodes through our SoundCloud page. We are, of course, uh, a part of the Playlist Podcast Network. Find us and all our shows at theplaylist.net. We want to thank Rodrigo Perez, the sort of, uh, not the sort of, the, our, our fearless leader over at theplaylist.net for, for taking care of us, for giving us a home. But um, yeah. you know, I'd be failing. I'd be failing big time if I didn't thank you, Joe. So thanks for talking with me today. Thanks, Eric.